Hello, everyone. This is episode 13 of Under the Wig. I'm Marnie McKenna. And I'm Ellie Smith. Our episode today is brought to you by MSLS, the College of Law and Keenwood Mallisons. The College of Law offers the largest range of flexible, practical legal training programs in Western Australia. With online, part-time and full-time study options and more than 10 start dates, you can fit PLT around your schedule. Google the College of Law to learn more. King and Wood Mellisons are pleased to work with MSLS and sponsor this Under the Wig episode with Greg McEnter. King and Wood Mellisons is known for their legal excellence, where our people have the opportunity to do challenging and cutting edge work for market leading clients in Australia and around the world. Recognised as one of the world's most innovative law firms, King and Wood Mellisons offers a different perspective to commercial thinking and the client experience. Always pushing the boundaries of what can be achieved, we are reshaping the legal market and challenging our clients to think differently about what a law firm can be. We offer our clients broad experience and deep insights across a range of sectors. For further information, head to our website, www.kwm.com. Our guest this episode is Greg McKinter, an incredibly qualified lawyer who worked on the Marbo case with our former guest, Brian Keen Cullen. How did you first get involved in this case? Uh, I started working with the Aboriginal Legal Service uh, in 1976, uh, and I started going out to the to the Western Desert, into central desert lands near the border of the Northern Territory and South Australia and Western Australia, uh, and taking part in land rights meetings of the Pitjantjara Council, and they were very firm that they had rights to land. By that stage, the Malerpum case, which I'd mentioned, uh, had been the subject of, of a further report by the, by the lawyer who ran the case for them, and that had resulted in the Whitlam government enacting the Aboriginal Land Rights Act of the Northern Territory. So there, by 1977, there were land rights in the Northern Territory. And so the Aboriginal people in the Central Desert who were south of the Northern Territory were saying, well, why do why aren't our rights being recognised in the same way? So with that background, I then started reading some of the academic criticisms of the um, Gove land rights case uh, and got a grant from the, what was then the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies to conduct a, some research on Aboriginal land rights of common law. Um, I... I presented some papers that I'd written on that topic to two conferences. The second of those was one in Townsville where Eddie Mabo was the co-convener of the conference on behalf of the Treaty Committee of Townsville with an historian, Noel Luce. Uh, and they asked me to come and, and speak at that conference on the idea of running a high court test case on land rights. Uh, and I, I did that with a barrister from Melbourne, um, Barbara Hocking. Uh, and by the end of that three-day conference, there'd been some meetings of Eddie Marbo and, and his um, another Murray Islander father, Dave Passy, uh, along with some leading um, lawyers, Professor Garth Netheim and others, to discuss whether they should run this test case that I had spoken about in this conference presentation, which I should mention for the students among you, it was run by the James Cook University Student Union. Um, 
along with the treaty committee. Um, so I left that conference and went to work in Cairns at, at an Aboriginal legal service there with instructions to, to put together a test case. Barbara Hocking went down to Melbourne and spoke to some of the senior lawyers that she knew to see who might be interested in, in helping to run this test case. Uh, after speaking to a few people, she spoke to Ron Caston, QC, and he said yes. He had done a case uh, about customary rights in Papua New Guinea, and he was very interested in it. He got he then spoke to another barrister, Brian Kean Cohen, who had just finished working with the Aboriginal Customary Law Reference of the Aboriginal Law Reform Commission. And so that was our team. We then I was the solicitor in the team with three barristers from Melbourne. Was, is there any specific memories of that case that have stuck with you the most over the years? Um, I always, um, uh, re- when asked that question, refer to the, the time in the, he- the final hearing of the case uh, in 1991. Uh, the only opponents we had in that case was the state of Queensland. Um, as it turns mm-hmm. out, none of the other states or territories took the view that the High Court was going to make a decision affecting anywhere beyond the, the Torres Strait. So when we'd finished our argument uh, and the Solicitor General for the state of Queensland stood up to, to start his argument, he was saying, well, that yes, they agreed that there were Murray Islanders on those the islands of the Torres Strait, uh, but they were there at the will of the of the state of Queensland, and Justice Mary Gordon said to to the Solicitor General, Mr. Solicitor, so does that mean they could have just been driven off into the sea? And Sir William Dean, who was also on the High Court at that stage, said, No, no, they were just trespassers on their own land. Mm-hmm. And I thought these judges have taken on our arguments uh, and have taken them to heart. And those judges wrote a joint judgment in which they uh, described the treatment of Aboriginal people as a stain on the history of of Australia. It must have been quite, I guess, like a very hard-hitting moment to feel like all that hard work. It definitely was a long case to finally have paid off. Um, Do you have any memories about the plaintiffs and uh, Eddie Marbo? Uh, yes. Um, we had a lot to do with, with Eddie. Um, uh, he, I, I shared a hotel room with him for a, um, some parts of the trial. We, the, the trial went in various um, aspects, but one of them one of the most difficult parts of it was the first uh, five weeks of the trial um, when Eddie Marbo gave evidence for most of those weeks. Uh, there were there were some breaks in the five weeks because of the judge was ill and Mr. Kian Cohen was ill. But for, for several days, Eddie Marbo sat in the witness box and told a story after story of what his grandfather had shown him about the blocks of land that he is claiming to have inherited from the Marbo family. Uh, and he mm-hmm. he recited them like parables uh, and they were clearly etched in his brain. 
Um, obviously, with such an influential case and a case I know a lot of law students now um, study in so many units um, with their degree, were there any specific, I guess, low points because it, it um, is known as such a long and, and emotionally difficult case um, throughout history? Uh, yes, there were several lows. The, the period that I was just speaking about where the well, let me start this way. One of the highs was that we, after the state of Queensland had said, um, we're going to strike this case out because it, there's no known concept in the common law, uh, they, we went down to argue that application and the barrister for the state of Queensland, David Jackson, said, well, we understand that you want to run this as a test case. We don't agree that you've got the law right, but why don't we just agree on a set of facts um, and we can come back before the High Court. You can put your arguments, we'll put ours, and the law will be decided. That seemed like an excellent result. We went off for two years to collect the facts. We came back in the state of Queensland and presented four volumes of facts to the state of Queensland. They said, oh, well, we can't agree on those facts. So then we had to... Um, have a trial of the of the facts um, to do, to lead evidence. Um, when we the first phase of that was when Eddie Mobo was giving this evidence, uh, and there were more than three hundred objections to his evidence on the grounds of hearsay. Now it clearly was hearsay. He was speaking about what his deceased grandfather had told him. Our view was that it was it met one or more of the bases for exceptions to the hearsay rule um, and I then spent some many months after the, all of the evidence was completed um, putting together submissions about the exceptions that applied but we were very worried at that first phase um, that the judge who was hearing the evidence was going to rule out all of our evidence uh, and we wouldn't have a case left. Yeah of course. Um... It's it's uh obviously for the time was was well even now is massively um, influential case is while you were um, a part of it did you uh, I guess experience any outside forces that played into the outcome of the case and and um, had an effect on uh, the process that took so many years? Yes, one of the one of the more significant ones was that when we prepared the case uh, after a few visits to Murray Island to work out um, how we would fashion the case. We we ran it with five plaintiffs, Eddie Marbo, his aunt Saluia Sully, uh, Sam Passy, Dave Passy, who were two brothers. Dave, Dave was the Anglican priest whom I mentioned having met in Townsville. Uh, and James Rice, who was then the chairman of the council. Uh, just before we were about to start the first um, part of the evidence, I had a phone call from a firm of lawyers in Cairns who said, we now act for the Passy family. Uh, and Dave, Sam Passy and Dave Passy uh, do not wish to continue in this case. Uh, and they are—they have instructed us to withdraw. 
And what we later, and, and that happened, they, they withdrew. So we were then left um, going into the beginning of the trial with our passive family, uh, who were a, an important part of our case. Um, and as it turns out, ultimately very significant. Um, we, we found out that Sam and Dave Passy had a brother, George Passy, who worked for the Department of, of Aboriginal and Islander Affairs in Queensland. Uh, and he had been told by his employers that this case uh, was a very dangerous case for them to be involved in, um, that they were going to lose the case and that there would be massive costs orders made against them and that they, that they would be very wise to withdraw from the case. Uh, and so acting on that information, uh, they were then directed to contact these lawyers uh, who had connections with the Queensland government uh, and uh, withdrew from the case. The, the first lawyer who rang me was at the time a president of the national, the national president of the National Party, which was the party in government in Queensland under the Bjorki Peterson premiership. Yeah. Um... In talking about the, I suppose, the history of Mabo, can you give us a bit of an overview on how Mabo shaped law today? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the most significant things, I think, is that it has um, taken us back to the basics of what property actually is. I always remember um, uh, Justice Gummo saying in the course of, an, of the argument, I think it might have been in the Wick case, where he said, property is not a block of cheese. Um, <laughs> and what, what he meant, what, what was going on in, in that comment was that, as the High Court said in, in Yanner and Eaton, uh, where they drilled down into the concept of property, they said, property is not actually a thing. It's a power relationship. It's about a person, one person's capacity to control what happens in relation to a thing, whether it's a piece of land or it's a block of cheese. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's the actual meaning of property. And I, th I think that's one of the, the most significant things. Clearly, uh, it's shaped um, how um, property law, law is dealt with uh, to a certain extent. Um, it, it's also had some, um, it plus Mabo number one and Kuwait and Bjorka Peterson um, have dealt with the concept of property as an international law concept and its protection um, through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the, the uh, convention, UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination where property is a right which is has is given a an international law meaning. Mm -hmm. um, what changes would you like to see to native title? Do you think it's uh, good as is? I suppose. Uh, no, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of, of what it's failed to deliver, um, and and. Of course, the, the procedures for getting a determination of native title uh, have been tortuous and continue to be for some. Uh, one of the things which um, I think the High Court got wrong in Mabo, at least, or at least a majority did, 
was to conclude that that grants of title uh, by the by the government um, extinguished all native title uh, prior except for the operation of the Racial Discrimination Act. There's a, a, a very um, erudite um, academic from Canada, uh, Kent McNeil, who's written some of the Bibles on native title internationally. And his view is that the High Court got that wrong, that, that the Crown cannot derogate from any title, particularly any title that's recognised at common law. And so the High Court was wrong to conclude that all the titles which were granted by the Crown prior to 1975 and the operation of the Racial Discrimination Act were in fact valid. Um, his view is that the proper, and that's what I find compelling, is that the proper view is that, that in fact any title granted post-British sovereignty was in fact invalid. Now, that's why I think the, the impact of the case could have been much, much greater than it was. No mm -hmm. doubt a solution would have been found for that. I mean, where, where there was found to be invalidity, which may have occurred since 1975 or otherwise, the parliament very quickly moved to, to alter that to make secure any titles which had been granted by the Crown, which could be argued to be insecure. And so I don't doubt that if we'd got a different result and all titles were found to be uh, insecure if granted by the Crown, then we would have had to obtain a different political solution. I think that should, should have, have resulted in a greater degree of socio-economic power for Indigenous people in Australia. To some extent... Out of, go on. Um, out of interest, how do you think that would play out in, uh, I guess, like in land ownership today? Like, what would that mean for people who own their own land? The way, it, the, the, to a certain extent, it is playing out um, in mm -hmm. some of the... In, I mean, one, one way it could play out is it could throw the whole property law system into chaos. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think very quickly the, the governments would step in to, to overcome that. And, and it's often said that in, in the US and in Canada, when these concepts were being developed, uh, they very, the court developed a pragmatic result, which is pretty much the same in the US as it is. Here, that is, that all titles which came from the colonisers were um, deemed to be valid. Mm -hmm. The, I mean, what what is happening, for example, in the in the two large settlements which have been agreed in Western Australia in the last several years, the Noongar settlement, and more recently the Yamachi Nation settlement, is that mm -hmm. governments have actually said, well, even if we're if we proceed on the basis that all native title has been extinguished or surrendered, we really have an obligation to, to provide you with something in place of that, uh, which is effectively the, the comp a compensation for taking away titles 
which you had. Now that they have done that not on the basis of a, of a legal conclusion by the courts, but an agreed position. Uh, and so that's really that really underpins the significant sums of money which the state of Western Australia has been prepared to contribute to the settlement agreements for the Noongar settlement and the Amateur Nation settlement. Um, and so I think to some extent it's happening um, back to front. Uh, and no doubt it's significantly less money than might have been the case if one started from the presumption that all title was held by the First Nations peoples and governments had to either buy it from them uh, or compensate them for takings which were done compulsorily or titles which were granted inconsistent with those rights. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, what so far has been the biggest challenge of your career? I mean, obviously, uh, running the Marbo Coast was a significant part of it, so I, I guess that was a uh, challenge. I mean, it, it, that, that was challenging, really, in terms of the logistics. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a, a, a large tome which was written by Brian Kean Cohen called A Marbo Memoir, Island Customs and Native Title. Uh, and mm-hmm. a lot of what he writes there is about the difficulties that I had as the solicitor in maintaining um, the financial, the, the money to, to actually keep it happening. Uh, and it, it was all, I mean, initially we got a, I got a grant from the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs of $50,000. Uh, that lasted for a couple of years. Um, then I was getting funding from the Office of Legal Aid and Family Services. We typically would get paid uh, after a year's, well, after we'd done, we'd been working for a year or so, we'd put in an account, it would sometimes take another year before they actually paid it. Um, I lost both of my um, airline credit cards because I was having to ferry witnesses around. Uh, I had to borrow mm-hmm. money from Keston, Ron Keston, who, who is in, was in the good fortune to have to come from uh, a family who didn't have any concerns about money uh, and he, mm-hmm. he lent me a couple of $10,000 loans to keep the case running. So wow. I suppose that one of the um, sort of difficulties, I, I took the file through five different employers um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I was sacked twice by the Aboriginal Legal Service uh, largely because I was running the case. So <laughs> Uh, you were sacked why were you sacked uh the first time was really because i mean that that, um that's an oversimplification the first time Mm -hmm. was 1988 when i i was working in the cairns office of the aboriginal legal service uh but the the brisbane commonwealth games were happening uh and so Mm -hmm. i decided that it was appropriate for me to go down to brisbane and and be with Frank Brennan, whom you might know, who's a well-known Jesuit lawyer. Um, Mm -hmm. And we provided some legal supervision for those taking part in the the Aboriginal land, Aboriginal rights marches uh, during the Brisbane Commonwealth Games and helping people get out on bail who were arrested um, 
by the police during those marches. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the committee who employed me up in Cairns wondered why I was down in Brisbane um, and decided that, uh, I, that not only what was I, shouldn't I, I should I not have been down there, um, but they they took what I think was this kind of strange view that, that I shouldn't be assisting other Aboriginal organisations in Cairns like the North Queensland Land Council uh, and that I should be sitting behind my desk and waiting for people to come in and, and make appointments and see me rather than seeing people in the street and reminding them that they needed to be in court next week or uh, otherwise they thought that my approach to the practice of the law was a little bit too loose. Um, they then put me on, when I say I was sacked twice, so they, they, they reinstated me after I explained what I was doing and they accepted mm -hmm. the of it. Um, and then after another, they then put me on a, a requirement that I sign in and sign out every time I left the office. Um, <laughs> and then after six months, uh, they sent me another termination notice because they didn't think I was complying with their requirements and my wife and it said well look, why don't why are you persevering with this go off i'll help you to go off and set up in private practice which is what happened um and the signing in and signing out worked to my advantage because the accountant mm -hmm. who was supportive of my position uh, worked out that i'd done an awful lot of overtime which prior to the signing in and signing out so had never been recorded so I got a nice little bonus uh, as my severance pay. Thank you so much for your time today, Greg McIntyre. I think a lot of your wise words of wisdom and your experiences will help us along the way in our careers. Well, it's been a pleasure. I, obviously, I've enjoyed my practice at the law and I enjoy talking about it. We wish to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation and pay our respect to elders past and present. We respect the knowledge and laws that traditional elders and Aboriginal people in this place hold and pass on from generation to generation. We'd also like to acknowledge the country that you are listening from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, College of Law, and to Kingham Wood Mallisons. If you like this episode, keep an eye out on our Facebook and Instagram for more.